This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. In the fall of 2019, all eyes in the running world were on a marathon in Vienna, but only one person was running in the race. And here he goes. This was a closed track in Vienna. The pavement was pristine. It was swept of all debris, no leaves or anything. And the runner was the world-class marathoner Ilyud Kipchoge, a great Kenyan marathoner. Our colleague Rachel Bachman covers sports. And he ran with a pace car, with a squad of pace setters running in front of him in sort of aerodynamic formation. This is amazing to see. As a fan of the sport, this is unreal. Iliad Kipchoge was running in that pristine track in Vienna, surrounded by pace setters, with one goal in mind. This was an attempt to break the two-hour barrier in the marathon. Now with 300 meters to run. The two-hour barrier in the marathon is sort of an athletic white whale, right? It's this mark that a lot of people have thought was impossible to break And that's one reason why some people wanted to try to chase it down and break it. A barrier once thought impossible is now broken. He finished the marathon in one hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds. So he even had a little time to spare. Hugs all around by the pace setters. How did Iliad Kipchoge break what seemed like an impossible barrier in running? He was an accomplished Olympian. He'd been training for months. He had a team of pacers. But what many people thought was a key to his success was something he was wearing, his shoes. Kipchoge is wearing these very distinctive, thick-soled, white Nike shoes. Once he broke that barrier, I think a lot of people said, this is confirmation that, hey, these shoes are making a difference. What was great for Nike was very disruptive to the rest of the world of running. Today on the show, the Nike shoe that's changed running and the battle it set off over the future of the sport. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, February 13th. That incredible athletic feat in Vienna was the culmination of a Nike project called Breaking Two. Nike was working to break the two-hour marathon barrier, and the company's line of shoes, known as the Vaporfly, was one of the ways they thought they could help make that happen. Nike clearly poured a lot of time and energy and resources into designing a shoe that could help get a runner across the line in less than two hours. You know, they never released a budget, but I'm guessing that with Nike's resources and its interest in track and field, uh, the people working on it probably had pretty much carte blanche to do what they needed to do. This wasn't Nike's first time obsessing over competitive running. 
Running shoes have been a core part of the company's DNA ever since its founding. The company that became Nike started in 1964 in Eugene, Oregon. It was started by University of Oregon track coach Bill Bowerman and one of his runners, a miler named Phil Knight. Bowerman, though, was the tinkerer, and he liked to make shoes lighter and better and faster. One of his early experiments, and probably the most famous, was pouring a melted, rubbery material like polyurethane into a waffle iron. I mean, like a Sunday brunch waffle iron. And at the time, track shoes were fairly flat, so these rubbery knobs that stuck out from the sole were new. They were quite innovative. And that experiment turned into the waffle trainer shoe which Nike launched in 1974. Back then, in the 1970s, Nike was a scrappy upstart, taking on an industry dominated by huge corporations like Adidas. But the timing of Nike's waffle iron shoe couldn't have been better. Around the United States, recreational running was beginning to take off. American Frank Shorter won the 1972 Olympic marathon, and that really launched the running boom in America. There were a lot of other brands at the time, but, you know, Nike was American, it was growing fast, and it really came to epitomize this running boom that was taking over the country. And Nike continued to grow. It landed sponsorship deals with iconic runners like Steve Prefontaine, and Eugene, Oregon became a major hub for competitive running. Meanwhile, the company continued to pour money into its running shoes with more sophisticated experiments than the waffle iron. Today at Nike, we developed one of the most sophisticated sport research labs in the world. Usually, what came out of those labs were just incremental improvements, like more supportive soles or more lightweight materials. But in its marketing, Nike still promised that their shoes could transform you into a better athlete. Making shoes that actually help athletes to run faster. For decades, these promises of running faster didn't actually make much difference for elite runners. But that changed in 2016, when Nike, which by this point is a massive company, debuted a new shoe, the Vaporfly. It first emerged at the 2016 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. Only it didn't have a name, there was no announcement or anything. Nike-sponsored athletes like Shalane Flanagan were just wearing them. And you see a pattern emerge that bunched toward the top of the finishers, increasingly, of these major marathons are runners wearing Nike Vaporflies. Vaporfly solidified its status as a revolutionary shoe in October of 2019. That's when Kipchoge broke the two-hour marathon mark while wearing a second-generation prototype of the Vaporfly called the Alphafly. And then that same weekend, another runner, also wearing Vaporflies, broke a different marathon record. Bridget Kosgay, who's a Kenyan marathoner, actually broke the women's world record that had stood for 16 years. So the fact that it it could fall was really a leap forward. And sort of the one-two punch of this really woke people up to the fact that there was no doubt these shoes were absolutely making a difference. Each time another athlete won a race wearing vapor flies, the conversation around the shoes got louder. Nike eventually started selling them to the public, and everyone, from elite marathoners to casual runners, got to see the power of the shoes for themselves. Tell me about this shoe. What does it look like? 
It has a swooping, thick but lightweight foam midsole. So it basically looks like a chunky sole. And within that is what Nike calls a carbon-infused launch pad. What that is is a full-length carbon fiber plate under the foot that it says, quote, provides a propulsive sensation to help you push the pace. It compresses and then snaps back and the foam and the carbon fiber plate work together to sort of spring the runner off the ground. So basically they allow runners to expend less energy to go the same distance. I've heard people describe them as magic. (laughs) I've heard some say that you feel like your kind of your heels are coming off the ground, that there really is nothing like them. It kind of reminds me of that movie Flubber. <laughs> I don't I don't know the are you talking about a certain scene? I don't think I saw that movie. It's a Disney movie where there's like this like little goopy stuff that you can put on your shoes and they put it on the basketball team, it makes you bounce really high. Yeah. So they put it on their shoes in the basketball team and they're dunking all over everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean this I guess you could say this is not unlike the flubber of distance running. <laughs> Magical, flubber-like results is something you often see in sneaker ads. Run faster, jump higher, boost your performance. Most of us understand that's just marketing. With the Vaporflies, though, runners started to wonder whether this magic was real. And if it was real, then was it also cheating? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, giving ambitious companies like yours the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. As more runners wearing Nike Vaporflies appeared on winners' podiums, it raised questions about just how much of an advantage these shoes gave record-breaking runners like Iliad Kipchoge and Bridget Kosge. According to a sample analysis of about 15,000 Strava athletes, and this is an app that lets you track athletic endeavors like cycling and running, the runners who ran in the five world major marathons in 2019, who were the latest Vaporfly model, posted the fastest median finishing time, about three hours, five minutes, and 35 seconds, which is a pretty fast marathon time. And the people just behind that cohort of runners were wearing a different kind of Vaporfly shoes. (laughs) And there's been sort of a wave of academic studies in the last year or two that have found that there is an advantage, and it ranges depending on which study you look at, but it's basically a few percent 
of sort of energy economy or few percent faster times with these shoes. And, you know, that is an enormous advantage. But not all runners could benefit from that enormous advantage. Other shoe companies like Adidas, Saucony, and New Balance were far behind Nike in this type of shoe technology. So for professional runners sponsored by these other companies, the Vaporfly put them in a tough spot. You know, running is not like playing in the NBA or playing in the NFL where you have a salary. Runners really have to set their own contracts. They have to find sponsors. They have to run races and win money. And and sponsors really are a crucial part of their annual income. And so for elite runners who were not sponsored by Nike, the fact that Nike has something that seems to be an advantage is a source of growing frustration because if you're sponsored by another company, you have to wear that company's shoes. And it's looking increasingly like other company's shoes are not keeping up. And so they can't just say, sorry, Adidas, I'm going to wear the Nike Vaporflies because those shoes are going to make me run faster? No, they can't. Um, in fact, if that does happen, it, it would be quite a story. I did talk to one person in the sport who said that he had heard of a, a lower-level runner actually turned down a sponsorship from another company just to be able to wear Nike Vaporflies in races because this runner thought that she would be at a competitive disadvantage if she didn't do that. There are examples of runners who say that not having the shoes cost them races. Kara Goucher finished fourth in the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials in 2016. Kara Goucher in fourth is at 43 seconds back and suffering. Look at that. There's a real hesitancy to Kara's stride there. Now we she was not wearing Nikes, and two of the women who finished ahead of her were. They were wearing prototypes that became Vaporflies. There's your U.S. Olympic team for Rio in the women's marathon. And so, in hindsight, she says she's very frustrated that these women were able to wear this shoe, and she thinks that not being able to wear that shoe probably cost her a spot on the U.S. Olympic marathon team in 2016. Many runners have called on the sport of running's governing body, an institution known as World Athletics, to look into whether the Vaporfly shoes were breaking the rules. With the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo on the horizon, sponsors and runners were anxious to know whether the shoes would be allowed. The World Athletics' rules on footwear left a lot of room for interpretation. They said that shoes couldn't give runners, quote, any unfair assistance or advantage. And Nike had said that the propulsive sole of the Vaporfly was only harnessing the effort exerted by the runner, not giving any kind of unfair boost. A Nike spokeswoman said, We respect world athletics and the spirit of their rules, and we do not create any running shoes that return more energy than the runner expends. But is that in line with how Nike's marketing the shoe? <laughs> well, Nike's marketing... It calls this a launch pad. You know, that does not sound like something that is not designed to be a performance aid when you're talking about an athletic pursuit. So officials at World Athletics were under great pressure to make up their minds, to decide, you know, is this shoe legal? Should it be legal? And if it's not, then tell us where to go from here. You know, how are we going to regulate shoes in a world where there's clearly one that 
is conferring an advantage on some people and not others. In January, World Athletics finally handed down its decision on the Vaporflies. It ruled that the shoes were eligible for competition. But World Athletics also drew a line. They instituted a limit on shoe sole thickness and what exactly could go inside. So what they essentially did was grandfather in the Vaporflies, the current Vaporflies that are available, but instituted limits on sort of further evolution of that. So for instance, one carbon fiber plate is okay, but multiple carbon fiber plates on different planes in the shoe are not okay. A thick sole is okay, but more than 40 millimeters thick is too thick. Interesting. So it sounds like they almost drew the line just on the other side of the vapor fly. So like the vapor flies as far as we're going to let shoe innovation go. Yes, that's essentially what they said. I think this issue in particular says something about Nike's influence in the sport that, you know, here we are several years beyond when this prototype first emerged and started raising eyebrows. And it's taken that long to get new regulations. And even those regulations really essentially allow Nike to keep its advantage in the marketplace, at least in the time being. And, you know, that's great for Nike, but I think other companies are very frustrated that this examination didn't happen much sooner. For these other companies, the decision from World Athletics meant they had to scramble to get ready for the Summer Olympics. While Nike's been perfecting its Vaporfly for years, competitors have only a few months to catch up. What we have now is sort of an in-progress arms race that is with us for the time being. Companies have been prototyping their answers to the Vaporfly, like Saucony. And it really comes down to two key uh, items in the shoe. One is a thicker stack of cushioning, and then we engineer it with a carbon fiber plate that's sandwiched between. And New Balance. There's two key elements that we want to talk about. One is our multi-directional carbon plate, and the other is the new fuel cell high rebound material. So, Part of World Athletics' new rules say that any shoe used in the Olympics can't just be a prototype, though. It has to be available to consumers. The thinking was that it's more fair if everybody has a chance to buy it. So the question is whether companies like Saucony and New Balance will be able to get their Vaporfly competitors in stores soon enough. Any shoe that an elite runner uses in competition has to have been available at retail for four months. And so essentially what that means is if a runner wants to use a certain shoe in the Olympics in August, then by April 30th, that shoe has to be available at retail. Do you think any of the companies are going to be able to meet that deadline? It really is quite a design challenge for these companies. You know, as we know, in manufacturing, there are all kinds of delays and glitches, and there's the supply chain issues. And so suddenly timing becomes very critical for companies who want to feature their top shoe in the Olympics. Several of them have said they can make it, but it's yet to be seen whether they will be as good as Nike's models. And Nike is still sprinting to stay ahead. Last week, it announced its next generation of the Vaporfly line, the AlphaFly, is coming to market later this month. Nike told us recently that this shoe will barely squeak under the new rules issued by World Athletics, so it will be legal for competition. But Nike is so far ahead of everybody. I mean, 
other companies are still trying to make the shoe itself, and Nike is adjusting its second generation. That's true. Nike really has a years-long head start, and that is really what is sending panic and stress among competitors. Trials for the Olympics will be held later this month. In the U.S., the top three women and the top three men will qualify. And then they'll race for gold at the Olympics in Tokyo in August. But this year, the shoes may command more attention than the runners wearing them. It raises these fascinating questions about, you know, companies push innovation. And at what point does that innovation cross into the threshold of fairness and being unfair? That really is the debate we're having right now. Some people say, hey, you're not following the rules. But, you know, some people on the other side say, hey, this is American capitalism at its finest. Nike invested and worked hard and figured out how to build a better mousetrap, and it succeeded. And it's achieving all these great results um, in road racing, and that should be celebrated. What does that mean for running then? Because you used to see people winning in all kinds of shoes, even barefoot. But now, like, you're ever going to see a winner not wearing a shoe that has this technology in it, even if it's the Nike or some other competitor that comes along? I think you're right, Ryan. I think people are going to be wearing the most technologically advanced shoe they can possibly wear because that is where the technology in this race has propelled us. And so... Some people have lamented the loss of this very elemental sport where shoes, frankly, really did not make a difference. But now we're talking about shaving percentages off a marathon time, you know, two-plus-hour marathon time, and that is such a significant difference. We're never going back. That's all for today, Thursday, February 13th. Additional reporting in today's episode from Lane Higgins and Khadija Safdar. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.